your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox. We'll be along shortly. We have a special guest for you on the episode today. It is Connor McKnight of ESPN 1000. We talk all things baseball, White Sox included. Can't wait for you to listen to what we had to talk about. And of course, you notice the timestamp. It's kind of long. I want you to stick around for the whole thing because there's a lot that we got to on this episode. Before we get to the interview... Thanks so much for supporting Future Socks. Go to SocksMachine.com. Become a patron if you're willing. It helps us continue to produce content. We do like this episode of the podcast every week, every day, 365 days a year. White Sox baseball's here. Spring training is already underway. You're checking box scores. We saw Brian Ramos play a little bit of third base. That was cool. We get to Brian Ramos in the episode as well. So please stay tuned for the whole thing. Thanks to the Blue Wire Network for allowing us to get this episode out to wherever you get your podcast. So without further ado, here's our interview with Connor McKnight of ESPN 1000. Oh, what a treat we have for you today. Connor McKnight joining us, the pre and post game show host for ESPN 1000, the Chicago White Sox. And he also calls some games, not only on the radio, but on television. C1 McKnight on Twitter if you want to give him a follow. Connor, thanks so much for jumping back on the Future Sox podcast. Looking forward to your 2023 as we kick off this conversation. Okay, so here's here's where I want to begin. I was able to get on the field a couple of times last year covering the White Sox. Uh, I, I don't take that for granted. And the first day I was there, I ran into Darren Jackson. And I talked to him a little bit about the broadcast. And I, you know, I, I've always loved listening to DJ but I told him specifically when Connor, when you're on the call, that there's a certain type of glow that comes out of DJ. And he says he he likes to bring the fun out of you as well on the call. And it's noticeable. That's one of the f- first things that I notice listening to 1000 as you're on the call. And to hear DJ say that, it just kind of put it all together for me because it seems like you two have a, a natural chemistry that really translates to the radio so let's, let's begin there. What's it like working with somebody like DJ? Well, thanks, first of all. Um, it is uh, a pleasure to be back on the Future Sox podcast. Mike, James, love what you guys do. And it's it's been too long, fellas. It's been too long. Um, DJ is uh, DJ's a crazy person, and I love him so much for that. I, I really do. Uh, I remember you coming by the ballpark a couple of times, Mike, and I, I think you and I got a chance to talk a little bit, and then I had to run off and either record something or, or whatever. I wish we'd had a chance, uh, more chance to just sit down and chat. But, you know, pressure of the day being what it is, had other stuff to do. I, I guess to answer the question, working, you know, because most of my, and I, I can equally spread praise all over Len Casper, the guy's going to be in the Hall of Fame, the whole thing, and and should be, and rightfully so. But, you know, when I work, Len's over on the TV side for the most part when I'm doing play-by-play, and working with Darren is just, it's it's so much fun. In a, in a very real way, guys, I never know what the hell he's going to say next. And it's fantastic, and it's it's really, really fantastic. Um, having a chance to work with, with Ed and DJ – when I was within this job the first time around 
was was a beautiful thing. I think White Sox fans who listened to both of them um, on on 670 for as long as those two did the broadcast there and then on LS and GN afterward, there was a certain quality to that radio broadcast where you could tell those two guys were absolute best friends. And I think I think DJ has that quality of bringing out a friendship um, of, of unique value with, with whomever he's broadcasting. Um, and I, I think that's what we've tried to find. You know, we have a very different kind of baseball relationship than he and Len do. Um, we're of uh, DJ and I are a very, very different generations. I, I remember a broadcast I was doing with him. I, I think it was I think it was the first year. And I used the Christina Carl phrase that, that I thought everybody knew, right? The three true outcome player, right? You guys have, you guys know the three true outcome player, right? I don't know if to, we, we grew up reading these things, home run, strikeout, and a, and a, and a walk type guy. And DJ gave me the hold up, explain that for everybody. And, and I, it didn't even occur to me then, you know, being the, the young neophyte play-by-play guy that to, to DJ, a guy who's been in this game, who's played this game, has obviously gotten the concept of a three true outcome player, but hadn't heard that term put on him. And I just really appreciate that he's able to, you know, kind of give you the X's and O's, but also, you know, kind of make you double check what you know, quote unquote, what you know about baseball with what other generations do and don't know. I think that's a very valuable thing in an analyst. And I think DJ is fantastic at doing that for his play by play guy uh, as much as he is for the audience in hand. It's always a treat tuning into 1000 and hearing your voice, uh, knowing that you're working with DJ and to know also now that there is opportunity in your future to be on television. You filled in a few times last year. I can imagine the expectation is going to be the same in 23. You tell us what it's like working with Jason Benetti and the differences between radio and television. Uh, it's, it's almost a different job, guys. It's it's almost a completely different job. I It's... It's the difference between being a podiatrist and a neurologist, you know, a doctor of feet and a doctor of brain. They're, they're the only thing in common is the body. It's it's so it's so crazy. And for a guy like Jason Benetti or or for Len for that matter, to be able to do both so seamlessly and and to have a love of doing both is so impressive to me. Uh, it is not lost on me that my, you know, kind of like apprenticeship in in play-by-play here comes under Len and and under Jason in a particular way. And I, I'll also say that, you know, I, I do hope, you know, to get a couple of TV games. I think you'll see me on, on the on the tube in a couple of spring training games here coming up. But um, being able to ha- having the opportunity to work alongside Steve Stone just kind of gives me the shivers because I think like like everyone who grew up in the Chicagoland area or really even more broadly, the Midwest and learned about baseball, there's almost no way you didn't learn something from Steve Stone when you were growing up. I sure did. I watched Steve a ton. You couldn't not watch Steve Stone, regardless of what broadcast he was on. Uh, So to be able to work with him was, I mean, wild. I mean, absolutely wild. The the text that I got from my dad after I had the first chance of of working with Steve uh, last year on on television, I think it was the game where the, it was, it was the game where the White Sox got to Shane Bieber for three home runs. And my dad's text wasn't anything about what the White Sox did or anything like that. It was, you just work with Steve effing Stone. That was my dad's text. That's all it said. And, uh, and that's because that was the import. That's how, that's how cool it was. 
um, for me to be able to do that, considering, you know, my family and how much we watched Steve growing up. So Connor, when you, you know, when you started doing this and I don't know how many people remember, but you know, winning the original score search and, you know, I listened to you for years, obviously was doing play by play always like part of the plan. Was it something that you wanted to do? Cause I will say like, with everything that happened at 670 and well-documented, whatever, like yeah. when, when this job came open, like you kind of feel like, okay, it's pre and post and, you know, there's like a lot of candidates, but the person's going to have to do games too. And I was, you know, I guess pleasantly surprised and very happy that the selection was you. I just, I didn't really know that play-by-play was part of the plan for you. So has it always been? No, not at all. Um, and I feel really lucky to to have been considered uh, this way. the The first time I did this job, and for fans who are you know just kind of listening or just kind of you know vaguely remember or whatever, um, I was the pre and post game host when the White Sox were on WLS for the first two seasons. There, the parent company Cumulus went bankrupt, um, and then the White Sox shifted over to WGN. Well, the parking lot was full at WGN. Um, though I had worked there before and have, have a great relationship with with management, with the management that was there at the time. They've, they've all since changed. Um, but I, I really liked everybody over there. And they were very polite and very kind in saying, you know, we, we appreciate you. We appreciate the value that you you would bring with the White Sox. But we, you know, they had guys like Adam Hogue and, and Joe Brand and Mark Carmen and, and Andy Mazur, I think, was, was there at the time as well. You know, all really good radio broadcasters. Mazur's a hell of a play-by-play guy. And, and I kind of thought, okay, well, you know, reconfigure what the, what the plan is. I was kind of going into or would have gone into what that would have been the third season there, hoping to get, you know, some play-by-play opportunities, maybe in spring training or, you know, filling in for a game here or there, something like that. I had done the the double duty classic, the uh, the Aces High School All Star Game, where uh, where Alec Thomas and Jared Kellenick were the kind of the bill players that my last season um, ended up being that my last season doing play by play, or uh, rather doing pre and post. I was the play by play guy for the double duty classic, and that was really my first chance of doing it. I thought it went really well. I was I was complimented on it, which I very much appreciated. And when I applied for this job, you know, the second time around, it was going to be a lot of play-by-play. It was going to be filling in on on shows on ESPN 1000. And I thought, well, shoot, I, I know how to host a radio show, uh, even though some people might not think so. <laughs> and uh, and I think I can do this play-by-play thing. And the the faith that that Brooks Boyer and, and the White Sox and Chris Quintana had in, in that kind of ability to grow was was really impressive, I think, or really appreciated, I should say. Um, and I think that you know, I, I had a working relationship with Len Casper via our uh, our conversations on the score for the most part when, when Dan Bernstein and I were doing a show there, Len was a regular guest. And, you know, I, I ran into Len a couple of times while I was working as a reporter um, covering both teams for the score. So I had had, you know, kind of a working relationship there and being able to you know, just kind of being able to be under a wing. I mean, you guys, I'm sure you guys have been in situations like this before, but you know, you kind of, you realize you're in a nice little spot and, and you, when you're under a wing like that, you nestle. So I, I just kind of made it my responsibility to, to nestle and learn. And um, the White Sox and, and Len and Jason have been, you know, more than, and, and DJ and, and Steve, I just keep on mentioning Len and Jason because they're the, the play-by-play guys. I don't mean to leave out the other two at all because I've learned a ton from both, but it's, it's just been a, a really incredible opportunity uh, to be able to learn and grow like this. Have you traveled much to road games? Do you have a favorite road city? I have traveled some. Uh, my first my first baseball road trip really as a, as a professional was, uh, again, with, with another shop, with the other one. I, I keep And, and I, co- I was covering the Cubs run in, in 2015. 
Um, so I covered the, the the playoff game against the Pirates. The if I know White Sox fans get it, but it, it, it's baseball. It's a job. It's what I did. Um, and then I covered the, the series against the Mets where the Cubs got waxed in four and that kind of thing. And I, I really enjoyed Pittsburgh. I, I don't know if you guys have been to that ballpark, seeing it's in the National League, but my God, what a – oh, my goodness. What a gorgeous ballpark that is. Um, and the Mets thing is is weird and interesting but cool. I made a couple of trips the last few years, went to Texas twice, which is just very hot and very empty. And the ballpark's nice, but it doesn't have a whole lot of <sighs> – it's not a lot of feel to it, I guess, is, is kind of the best way to put it. Really, really liked going out west. Um, the, the A's trip, I, I made a trip to the A's, Oakland Coliseum. And while I, I'm sure both of you are scratching your heads, it is everything people say it is. And also, I'm so glad to be able to say I called a game in Oakland Coliseum because that is just a, boy, is that a different experience. Just really, truly truly crazy. Uh, Detroit is cool. Really liked that. My brother and and his wife and my my nephew live in Minneapolis. Uh, well, just outside of it. Uh, and I think that Twins ballpark is, is Target Field is fantastic. Um, our accommodations around there are always first class. So that's really nice. I enjoyed my trip to Baltimore. I'm, I'm hoping to have a favorite pop up this year. I think the last two years, I've kind of been in this not that anybody takes the luggage of a broadcaster and puts it on the bus for you, but you know when Crash Davis is on the minor league bus in, in Bull Durham and he goes, you know, you hit white balls in batting practice and you never carry your luggage in the show. I, I still kind of have wide eyes from that and I'm still very much appreciating that part of big league life. I, I guess if if there had to be a favorite, if, if somebody had to edge it out at this point, I guess I'd say Camden Yards. Um, but there are a lot of them kind of vying for the crown. I'm hoping to have a favorite pop up. Quickly, like my my wife's family's from Pittsburgh, so I go. Oh, cool. We go all the time. I will be in Pittsburgh watching the White Sox on Easter this year. So, oh, that's fantastic! Yeah. What a, yeah. I mean, truly, what a stunning ballpark. I mean, that everything they did there was absolutely beautiful, and the fact that you can sit up there in the broadcast area or in the upper bowl behind home plate, and you're staring over Roberto Clemente Bridge, I, it's just the mind reels. It's really, really something. I love what you said about the Coliseum. I, I I know what you felt, even though I've never been there, the way you described it. I understand that, that sense of euphoria there. Oh, it was wild. I mean, this was this, yeah. I, like, I think Jason, this was the series, if you remember, Gordon Beckham was on the trip for Steve, which is why I was filling in anyway on radio. And I think Jason had ants crawling all over him and was talking about it <laughs> during the broadcast and like... There was, I kid you not, and I, I don't mind telling this because I think everybody understands it about Oakland Coliseum. I, I truly think it's beautiful. And also, that is an, it's a prestige ball club that that hopefully gets better digs soon. I was in an ancillary booth with uh, someone fairly high up in the White Sox on the, on the day off before I was doing play-by-play. And I turned, and there's like a, a sliding door cabinet behind me in this auxiliary booth. So I open it. And I, in the booth is a bunch of like loose wiring and a pipe and a crate, like what is very clearly uh, an audio visual, you know, like one of those kind of hard case, um, silver clasp kind of cases where, you know, there's some audio equipment inside, something like that. And in white masking tape and black Sharpie that is clearly aged, it says Cleveland Indians 94 on the case. Obviously, that thing hasn't moved 
probably since 94. It was awesome. No, that's that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I love all this is all so fascinating. I, I can't wait to go to Camden Yards myself. So, uh, Connor, hearing all of this, we'll get to the White Sox, I promise. Sure. But when it, when it comes to, you know, doing the thing that you got, man, you, you describe the pathway to where you are today and you blink and it's and it's like, man, I can't believe it. But you've experienced so much, you've accomplished so much. What was it that inspired you to, I guess, maybe not inspire, but just what made you fall in love with the game of baseball? What about the game itself has kind of taken over your life? Oh, man. Um, so much of it. I Like, I am, I, I guess in my heart, I, I'm a nerd. You know, I, I played ball. I was okay. Um, I was always one of the, I was always the youngest boy in my class. You know, whether it was like seventh grade or eighth grade or, or all through high school, uh, my birthday's in July. It's actually during the all-star break, like every year when there's a normal schedule. So I was always the youngest kid. So I, I showed up to college and finally felt like I, you know, kind of like I could go, hey, uh, why don't you throw this over the plate instead of throwing it at someone's head? And then my body listened for the first time when I was like 19, which is a really cool experience. So I played some and I played intramurally and things like that and really enjoyed it. So playing the game was always like, you know, a touchstone for me. But I remember reading Moneyball uh, for the first time in 2004, I think it was. Book came out, 03, if I remember right. And that changed my relationship with the game. I mean, in a very real way, the analytics of this and and in Lewis's book, it, it's, it's more so that book, if you guys have read it, I'm sure you have, is more about questioning what you know to be true than it is about analytics or anything like that. And that's kind of the theory or the, the, the thesis behind a lot of Michael Lewis books. And I, I just really enjoyed that quizzical look at something that had been around for already a century at that point. So once I kind of, you know, felt like I had these extra set of keys to access a game that had long ago passed me by talent wise, I felt like I was watching it all over again with kind of a new set of eyes. And, and I, I, you know, I love, love John Miller and Joe Morgan broadcasts. I, you know, if you're my age, 36, 37, 38, you know, that kind of, that kind of wheelhouse, you grew up listening to those guys on Sunday night baseball and Joe Morgan would beat the hell out of analytics and, and saber metrics and Billy Bean and Michael Lewis and all this stuff. And I thought it was so beautiful that Joe Morgan, who I learned the game from watching television, hated analytics. And also, I don't think there's anybody from from that two decades of his ball playing where analytics lifts them up to a next level like Joe Morgan. I mean, it just looking at him through that particular lens makes him such an even more valuable player than we knew him to be on the big red machine. So, you know, I, I thought that was really a, a, an amazing thing to have uh, to kind of understand about the game. You know, I, I loved watching Frank Thomas growing up. I really did. The home run chase of 98 with Sammy Sosa and the Cubs and Mark McGuire and the Cardinals was, you know, again, I'm, I'm 37 years old. So 98 is just like right there. I, I, I vividly guys, I vividly remember being outside in the yard when Sammy, I think was coming up on 60. He didn't hit it that night, but my mother screamed out into the yard. I mean, it's like a, it's like, it's, it's like a pastoral thing, right? I mean, she literally screamed out of the yard and my brother and I told us to stop playing, come in because Sosa's got another at bat and let's see if he hits 60. Like 
that's that was my era. That's what that's what made me love this game. All of those things kind of combined. And that's kind of that's kind of who I've always been as a baseball fan. That's kind of what's gotten me to to be in love with this game as much as I am. That's great. Uh, that's all really good stuff. You mentioned Moneyball. Mm-hmm. There's a book. I'm not sure if you've read it, but I, I will recommend it to you and the listeners. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Ben Lindbergh. Yeah. Yeah, man. I uh, Ben is my – I don't mean to cut you off. I, I just – I feel like saying Ben Lindbergh is my favorite baseball writer. And yeah. when I have a chance to get him on White Sox Weekly, which is – I try not to bug him a lot because I think every time – that he picks up the phone. I'm like, Oh my God, it's Ben Lindbergh. He's like, all right, <laughs> settle down. And I, you know, we, we have an interview and it's great and everything like that. But yeah, I, I read that book, Mike, I took that book on my honeymoon last February and read the whole thing in, in about nine and a half hours. That's, <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, it's good. Connor, that's how I would have been. Like you interviewed Jeff Perlman and that's how I felt. I was like, oh, oh. man, Connor's talking to Jeff Perlman. I don't know if I would have even been able to talk to the man. and like. Get that's words another one. That. Jeff, yeah. here's the other. Jeff DM'd me when he started writing that. And I'm sure he, he, you know, he's a fantastic author. So like he wasn't starting with Connor McKnight, but he DM'd me and was just like, hey, man, I'm, I'm thinking about a book on Bo Jackson. Are there any names? with the White Sox that, that are outside the normal names that, that you think I should talk to. And I, I sent him a couple of names or whatever. And I don't, I don't know that any of the stories necessarily made the book, but Jeff is obviously a, like his whole calling card is if I've done a book on you, I've talked to everyone who's ever talked to you and everyone they've ever talked to about you. Like that's how well researched the guy is. So it was like, Getting that DM, I was staring at it, going, "Oh, oh my God, Jeff! Like, <laughs> yeah. go to bed because you're clearly overtired. Why are you asking me?" He did not DM you about Tupac. I guess I'm guessing. No, Tupac. His, no, yeah, he did. That's his next one. So, he yeah. could have, but he didn't. Yeah. All right, so Connor, let's talk White Sox. Just in general, how are you feeling following the off season? Andrew Benatendi, the the signing, and then late Elvis Andrews coming in just before spring training starts. There's some depth, I think, in the middle infield suddenly, considering Romy Gonzalez, Lenin Sosa, Leary Garcia, and the like. What are your impressions following the coaching changes as well? Some of the additions, just overall, your feeling heading into spring training 2023. Yeah, so I think. You know, guys, I, I think about this White Sox series right now, or season right now, in kind of um, a football analogy a little bit. If you ever, the the term bad win gets popped up a lot. Now, there are other coaches who, who call them kind of different things. I don't think we can say a lot of those words, or at least I'd rather not. But like the idea that you, you know, in a football season where every week counts, right? Every game counts so much more. You win a game, but you play like crap. So a coach gets to go into his post-game press conference saying, we got so much to work on. We're such a garbage team. But you walk out of there with a W, you know, that kind of feel. Coaches love that. I mean, they they lo- I've talked to, you know, Matt Bowen and Anthony Heron, the football guys that I know a little bit. And coach, they just, you know, they both coach a little bit too. They love it when their team plays like hell and they win a ball game because then they get to coach coach and they get the win. And I kind of feel a little bit like that about the 23 White Sox. There's a lot of talent on this roster. There really is. It needs to stay healthy, obviously. But also, I think you can look at last year like a like a bad loss, right? So in a way, Pedro Grafol and the rest of his coaching staff get to come in there and look at the talent that is already on hand and the expectations that are very still very, very high in this White Sox organization. That is their win, right? That's the win they got out of this, this bad win kind of thing, out of 2022. And they get to look forward and say, listen, we've got all this. 
and we're here now and it's different. So we got to coach. The stuff on the margins matters to us, you know, in this division, in the, in the central, the way they are, the way these teams are, every little win, I think, is going to matter. And it, it seems like at the beginning of camp, you know, Griffol is, is really kind of preaching that kind of thing. I, I appreciated how he framed, and we can get into it if you all want to, the, the Eloy Jimenez right field kind of conversation. Um, and I appreciate what he said about, you know, guys who haven't won jobs yet, that there's going to be competition out here and that... While he's trying to, while he is communicating with each of his players as clearly as possible, something he stressed yesterday is that even in good communication, you may not be hearing the things you want to hear. But that doesn't mean that good communication stops. That just means you keep communicating well the stuff that a guy might not want to hear. That doesn't mean that you're not communicated with well. And I appreciate that nuance. I appreciate that difference. I appreciate too that really to the to a man uh you know with the exception of a, a few newcomers right in Benintendi and, and some others there's not a lot of guys who get to go into 23 all that thrilled and that i think brings an edge and that i think brings one of the most powerful forces in sports to play you don't think whoever you is you don't think we can do this so then you go do it and that helps in sports, regardless of whether we like it or not, whether we like to hear it or not. But I, I like that all those things can be brought to bear in this season. You've seen spring training before yeah. in, a, in a few different... What are what are some things you'd like to see? Just, you know, in the Pedro Griffol's first camp as manager, you know, with a pretty much whole new coaching staff. There's a couple of guys back, obviously. But, you know, I think some of the general philosophical stuff is going to be a little different, especially on the hitting side. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I'm I'm really looking forward to having conversations best I can over the next couple of days with um, guys like Chris Johnson and Mike Tozar and, you know, really, really kind of talking more uh, to those guys, kind of getting a sense of who they are, how they like to coach. Um, I was talking with someone in the White Sox front office and uh, about the, the hitting infrastructure and was really liking what I heard in terms of the different kinds of personalities that each of those coaches may bring to bear for players. I've kind of been an advocate, and I know Hawk Harrelson was too for a while, and um, DJ is, is now, I think, a little bit too. I've never really understood why you don't have like five hitting coaches for a team. Like The idea that one guy knows how to um, coach nine different swings or 11 di- different swings is insane to me to say nothing of the fact that like, how is one guy going to connect with 11 different millionaires? Like how, how do we do that? Like truly, how do we do that? So kind of outsourcing some of those solutions to more qualified people has always made sense. I love this idea and I like spreading around to, to more guys. I think we're seeing a lot of that in big leagues right now. Um, as for some of the things I'd like to see in camp, I, I, I want to see, and the, this isn't to say that it didn't exist in camps prior, but I think when when it gets to that next level, when it's really being attended to, it's very clear. I like to see crispness, crispness, right? Easy for me to say. I, I want to see that kind of snap around the field. I like to see, you know, hard hit ground balls off fungo bats where guys are treating them like game reps. I, yeah, I was just doing McKnight at the movies for, for ESPN 1000 this morning. It's a bit I do. I do play-by-play for a movie. And I did Major League because, you know, that's what you do this time of year. I did the scene where they're cracking ground balls at Roger Dorn and he finally takes one off the body and Lou Brown's like, way to get in front of the ball, Dorn. Like, I love that stuff. That's what I want out of spring training. That's, I want to see that the way, you know, kind of the way you do anything is the way you do everything. This idea, 
And that's been thrown around a little bit in Sox camp. And I, I like that that matters again. In talking with Darren, right, Darren Jackson, I really kind of have learned that though I came to this game unequivocally from an egghead standpoint, that we, and I know, I know we hear this all the time on national ESPN broadcasts. And I, I, you know, your old managers say this on MLB network shows and we kind of roll our eyes at it and stuff, but this game is played by humans. But I mean that in a different way than sometimes they mean that when they're talking about production and stats and how you put a team together and everything, you have to reach players. You just have to. And if you're not, you're leaving so much untapped. And I think that's very much understood, it seems, by this coaching staff. And I really, it, so far, I know it's really early, so far I really appreciate that. Yeah, so obviously, like, you know, we like prospects here. Um, <laughs> we're oh, fan, really? we're, yeah. You guys? Fans of Lenin Sosa think he got a little bit of a raw deal last year, but, you know, it kind of is what it is. Right. And then, and then Romy Gonzalez, you know, seemed like the front runner at second base, even though I think... You know, maybe a utility role is like the ultimate spot, whatever. Elvis Andrews is back. How much better, like, do you feel just about that? Like, you know, you can slide Elvis Andrews at second, and these other guys kind of fall in place. And if one of them's great and forces the issue, awesome. Um, But this seems, uh, like a pretty good idea to me. Yeah, I agree with you. I I was surprised with how good I felt, how much better I felt about the White Sox after after that particular signing. I think it does all of the things you just mentioned for them. It lengthens the lineup. Um, even if Andrews is a guy, he's still Elvis Andrews being a guy and not a guy being a guy. You know what I mean? I think the smarts he brought to that infield last year were evident. I think it was his, and maybe you guys remember, I, I meant to look this up, and I'm going to before the broadcast with Len on, on Saturday, I promise. Um, but there was a moment, I think in Andrews's second game with the Sox, he's playing short, and he comes in and grabs the uh, the rosin bag while, I forget, I think it might have been Jimmy Lambert on the mound, young guy, regardless who it was, maybe it was Kopech. And, and he has a de facto mound visit right then and there in his second freaking game in a White Sox uniform. Do you have any? Of course you guys do, but like the, the casual fan may not understand how many, how much how many stones you have to have in your bag to do that on the brand new ball club. You have to be Elvis Andrews to do that and to, to deliver that to a player and to look at an umpire and say, back off. This is I'm just grabbing the rosin bag. It's not a mound meeting. Just keep on your business. Like don't get out from behind the plate. I loved to see that. I loved it. Um, so having that kind of headiness, that kind of intelligence matters. I, I think it absolutely does rub off on other players, even if it's just be a little bit more aggressive with that throw. Get it in from the outfield a little bit faster. Elvis is there. He's going to figure out what to do with it. This That sort of thing can have a trickle-down effect. And I think having him in camp for the duration here, as opposed to, you know, the like AJ Pollock came in late or whatever, that's even better, you know, to, to have him here for that whole camp, to have Elvis Andrews there is good. To have Billy Hamilton here for nothing other than vibes is is great. Um, it also allows me to get a note out during the game on Saturday that the White Sox have two of the three active stolen base leaders in Major League Baseball on the roster at the same time here in spring. So there's a little uh, there's a little dip for you here on Future Sox. Love that. Thank you for that. And we'll be listening on 1000 all season long. So Connor, I want to broaden this conversation to the entire organization and ask you about three names. And that's Marco Patti, Mike Shirley, and Chris Getz. Sure. So 2020 was Mike Shirley's first draft. And here we are in 2023. We're starting to see a little bit of a foundation being built 
within the organization. And also we're seeing a payroll at around $190 million at the big league level. To me, it appears that the White Sox really are trying to invest in internal development. And with the way that obviously Marco Patti's had success in the international marketplace, Chris Getz has really propelled the organization forward with some of the advanced analytics and tech that they're bringing in the R&D department. We talk about uh, this all the time on the Future Sox podcast. And Mike Shirley, the philosophy that he's bringing to the three drafts that he has under his belt. Curious your opinion on just your evaluation of the way the White Sox kind of transformed with those three leading the charge in the development department. Yeah, I, I think it's I think you're right to point out those names. And I, I think another guy that I'm really interested in finding out more about is Sam Mondry. Um, he was hired from the National. He, he was an assistant GM with the Nationals. He essentially, I guess, you know, kind of the, the, the reporting goes, built out their entire analytics computer system and whatnot. You know, I don't... I don't know how accessible uh, Sam plans on being. Sometimes those guys aren't, and that's fine. It's not necessarily part of their job description. But I think kind of that um, that double down to play catch up a little bit with the rest of where where baseball is in terms of uh, using all of the tools available to chase down those extra couple of wins. You know, I, I think that matters. You know, we've we've seen some of the finances in around baseball. We know what these teams sell for when they when they do sell. Um, and, and some people, you know, a lot of veteran guys have, I've heard it said, it kind of, you know, you're throwing around a hundred million dollars a year trying to chase a win and a half. Yeah, that might be true. But when your division comes down to a win and a half, I, th- I think you could make your money back. Right. I, I think, I think that's a worthwhile investment. It's, and, and for the White Sox, not that I'm, I'm saying they've been reticent to do that, um, far from it, given the investment we've just talked about. But, you know, when you're in a division where, the the leader is projected for you know what have you guys seen in that something like 83 84 82 wins for the Cleveland Guardians i mean that's shoot you can go get that and i i i think when it comes to kind of rounding out this farm system there's no doubt that it was you know in my my first run in this job that was you know i kind of was there for the beginning of the rebuild i remember uh you know being on air when we found out about the trades um, I remember being on air. We did our first post-game show when Yohan Moncada debuted in the rain, and, and it, it, the, that whole game I, it was it was a blast. But you know, now it's kind of about rebuilding um, some other things. And I I like from a, from a system standpoint. I think a lot of people got nervous about the Colson Montgomery draft pick, given that he was an overage small high school Midwest guy, right? And overage high schooler that is. Um, not that you can be old when you're a high schooler. You're you're still just you know eighteen or nineteen, right? I, that has panned out. You know what I mean? Like if nothing else, you, you've kind of shown to be able to identify whatever skill sets you needed to identify there and also develop them in kind of an advanced way. I think when we look up and down baseball and we realize the shock to the system that so many teams and so many, so many uh, prospect systems are facing, given the wipeout of the low minors and then the 40 teams that went away, which is just all bad. But it's gone now and you got to live with it. I, I think teams are kind of facing this this daunting prospect of – I keep on using the word prospect when we're talking about prospects. It's got to be confusing. But they're facing this daunting idea of having to over-promote guys because they don't have a lower league to stick their 18 or 19-year-olds in. You, some of these guys get to put, shut up, put up or shut up. And for a kid like Montgomery to be able to do that I think is kind of a, a big thumbs up for the system. I've done some rambling here, Mike, so I'm not entirely sure. That I've answered your question all that well, but I, I hope I've I've gotten to points and parts of it. 
Well, no, that's that's essentially the essence because I agree with you 100%. In the draft year of some players entering the organization for the first time, they don't have the luxury to fail at Great Falls, no, which is – No, they don't. And that's, that is – I think that is an absolute hamper to the overall talent that's going to manifest itself at the major league level in 25 and 26 and 27, and yet here we are. I, I just – that rankles me as much as anything else in baseball uh, in the changes over the last two, three years, just for what it's worth. Yeah. And people have this, I guess, predetermined idea of what double A looks like and the type of competition there is. And you're right. I mean, who knows in three years what double A would look like in guys who maybe aren't as mature in their professional careers or their career path as they were, say, 10, 15 years ago. And sticking to that, the White Sox called Project Birmingham, essentially in an instructional league, like an advanced one, similar to what Schaumburg was in 20. Curious your opinion on Project Birmingham, the philosophy behind that, and obviously the the group of names that were involved in Project Birmingham, just mm-hmm. the, the motivation behind that decision. Yeah, I, you know, I, I do a yearly kind of uh, wrap up with Chris Getz on White Sox Weekly. Um, we've both come to kind of enjoy doing it. Well, I, I, Chris tells me he does, so I'll take that as a win. But we kind of wrap it up, and I, I shot him some questions I thought were some you know fairly you know driving questions uh, about Project Birmingham, and I, you know I think he answered them all fairly well. I was pretty happy with the responses. I don't think that it was an unmitigated success, but I don't think that it needed to be right. I mean, you didn't need each one of these guys to knock their first double A home run in their first at bat up at Birmingham. That's just not the purpose of this. The purpose was to have everybody under one roof to see and understand that this can be you, right? Like to be able to look around and say, all right, okay, this is these are both my teammates and my competition. And these are the coaches that can get me there. These are the lessons that I've got to learn regardless of the results. Now, I also think that those results do matter, right? It, it, is, very, it is a very difficult thing to look at, and I'm just kind of picking numbers here, but to look at a 20-year-old kid who's who's making his first couple of swings through double A and he's 0 for 7 with six different strikeouts and then he fouls one off for his first con- – he plays like hell, right? And, and then you have to look at that kid at the end of the minor league season and go, don't worry, we love you, that didn't matter. Now that same kid has to look around that room with all of those other prospects and go, okay, it didn't matter, it didn't matter, it didn't matter, it didn't matter. But that guy hit two home runs, and that guy got on base six times, and that guy was on a highlight reel defensively, and I sucked. So now you've got to figure out what to do with that as that prospect. You've got to figure out what to do with that for that prospect as you're the organization. And I I like that idea, especially when you don't have the low minors to kind of sort that stuff out anymore. I, I think you know, being able to force that I don't know if pressure is the right word, but kind of intensity maybe onto some players is a good idea. And, you know, maybe they do it again this year. Maybe they tweak it a little bit. Maybe they blow up, blow it up altogether and, and, and abandon it and say, well, we learned a lot, but, you know, it doesn't need to be over again. I, I think it's absolutely worth trying in an age where the league has told you that you can't do minor league baseball and minor league investment in players and prospects the way it used to, but we're not going to help you change it either. So go figure it out for yourselves. So we, you know, we talked about second base. One of the other spots that's, I guess, you know, been trouble for a while, right field. It's, they're talking an awful lot about Oscar Colas, Connor, and mm. you know, I, 
I don't know if I expected it. Like, you know, one of the first things Rick Hahn, you know, one of his first media availabilities, like in November, brought up Oscar Colas by name. And I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, once they do that, he's essentially part of the plan as far as being given an opportunity to be on this team. So, you know, we kind of talked about spring training competitions and whatnot. What do you think like the White Sox would like to see from Oscar Colas this spring to make the decision to have him be the right fielder on opening day? I would guess that what you want to make sure you see or get from Oscar Colas is an equal kind of portion of seeing his top end skill sets, whatever they deem those to be, and watching him fail some and deal and and how he deals with that failure, right? I think that's a big part of evaluating what you have in a player. Um, I think from a skill set standpoint, obviously, you'd love to see kind of a better pitch recognition on stuff with spin. I think you'd love to see, uh, I, I would guess, more than competent right field play. I think outfield defense is, you know, when we talk about how good a baseball team is or isn't, I don't think anyone's talking about outfield defense enough. Maybe some people, but like I really try and stress it because I think it matters a lot given the shape of the game right now. Um, so being able to throw in a guy like Colas, who, who may well be an above average right fielder, is a massive upgrade from where the White Sox were defensively uh, in, the, in the outfield corners over the last couple of years. And I think that matters a ton. You know, in Arizona, you're not going to see the ball spin a hell of a lot. You know, curveballs don't curve and changeups don't change and sliders don't slide as much as they're going to in other places. But you know, we all know that at this point. Um, I, you know, like you, James, Rick doesn't do that about guys not on the 40-man roster at that point in the winter ever. And there's a lot of caveats, but I think you could also kind of cover it with just saying Han doesn't do that much with players, period. Um, so I I really do think that was, you know, kind of lay the carpet out for Oscar Colas. And I think barring anything unexpected and or injury-wise, you know, the, the doorway's right o- wide open for him to, to be that opening day right fielder. You know, how much playing time he'll get is going to be up to Pedro Griffol. And, and I think one of the things where, you know, Tony LaRusse's tenure as manager, you can, you can really applaud him for, I think the, the, the way that he used and deployed Andrew Vaughn in the first, I don't know, call it three, three and a half months of his rookie season was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. He found the right matchups. He sat him in the right times. He, it just it was it was absolutely great because you saw the development. You you didn't over lean or overuse, and and hopefully the White Sox have a situation uh, somewhat similar with with Colas where they're able to you know kind of mirror that sort of thing over the first couple months of the, the first big league season. So there's you know there's lots of guys in the WBC and we don't really need to get into that, but you know like we talked to Oscar Colas and some others. Are there any other prospects? I guess that you're just you're interested in getting a look at that might play in some of these big league games early on in spring training. Well, sure. Let me pull up my future socks uh, list of prospects. You guys that's what I'm whole, talking about. You guys have the whole system listed right there on your top 100, don't you? There it is. 2023 top 30 list, 1 through 15. You can find it there socksmachine.com. Love the merger that you guys have gone through. You know, this way I don't, I use this list so that I don't forget anybody just, you know, for your White Sox. Of course. Yeah. I got to talk a little minor league baseball on the pre and post game show. This is the list I'm looking for. Obviously, Lenin Sosa and Jose Rodriguez, you know, it'd be nice to say, I'm sorry, not Jose Rodriguez, um, Brian Ramos, apologies. Middle infield kind of stuff. That's what I'd like to see. I'm, I'm really interested in seeing Sean Burke pitch. 
as as much as as I can. I don't know if he's going to be a guy. I mean, listen, when we talk about depth and obviously the uncertainty around the Mike Clevenger situation, pitching depth matters in this game, regardless of whether or not you've got a guy that may or may not be facing disciplinary action. So when you go Davis Martin and then, you know, the White Sox, probably unfair to say that they've used Sean Burke's name on the pitching side the way they have Oscar Colas on the outfield side, but it's been kind of close. I'd like to see what he has. They've they've also were you guys as a little bit surprised as I was to hear Matthew Thompson's name brought up the way that it has been yes um, by Getz and by yeah. and by Rickon and I've Thompson is not a guy that I've been able to see pitch live uh, just whether it's over the last couple of spring trainings obviously or or just I, I don't get to minor league games so if I'm you know if I've got opportunity to go see a bullpen or whatever. Uh, that's a guy I'll probably track down and and just see what's up, right? I I that was interesting to me the way that got talk, he, the way he got talked about. Well, I think the I think the first time I heard that was with you. I didn't you you talked to Getz, right? I think it might have been on your show. Yeah, where yeah, he where he brought up Matthew Thompson, and I'm like, oh, okay, because like he brought him up with. Bur- I mean, you're right. Like Burke is probably starting pitcher seven, depending on what they think of AJ Alexi and some of those type of guys. Um, but yeah, I mean Matthew Thompson's at Double A, and he's something that I always kind of pay attention to. He's rule five eligible in December. So my guess is, you know, he's, he's one of those guys too, that you may see if things go well at Birmingham. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you're, I, I think you're absolutely right. I know you guys mentioned this a lot on, on y'all's podcast, but like keeping an eye on, on that rule five eligibility and stuff like that, you know, cause some teams are a little bit more cavalier with where their guys are and aren't relative to that 40 man roster. But I've always taken that proximity, you know, a, a player's proximity to that Rule Five draft is as fairly important, especially when we're talking about the draft status of said player and the fact that he pitches. Right. The only thing that I think could make Matthew Thompson more of a you know blinking red light in terms of like, all right, keep an eye on that guy, is if he was left-handed, right? Because like that's a dude you don't let go. Period. End of story. And you'd expect to see him on the 40 man. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. That is a guy I think White Sox fans should be, you know, staring at pretty hard throughout the course of the minor league season. I'm with you. I'm looking forward to seeing Sean Burke pitch. I mean, he moved through the system quickly, a year and a half within the organization. They already expect him to pitch at the big league level this year. And I mean, pitching overall is what I guess I'm worried about mostly mm-hmm. because I mean, one or two injuries can really derail a season. I want to back it up though. Not to just totally shift gears. You mentioned Andrew Vaughn and Jose Abreu leaves the organization mm-hmm. first time since 2013. And Andrew Vaughn suddenly has a position where he's comfortable playing every day. What about the skill set and especially him at the plate makes you feel encouraged or discouraged about the future of, of just his value moving forward? Well, I think I think that's a really I think that's a really apt question for this year's White Sox. But Real quickly here, I just clicked the uh, what is it the the sixteen through thirty on the future Sox prospect rankings. Uh, Jordan Sprinkle and Gregory Santos are two more names that I'm really looking forward to seeing play. Just you know, because I kept on clicking through future Sox because I always <laughs> do. It's what I do. Um, Vaughn, I think, and, and I saw Ozzy talking about this I, on on a podcast. I apologize, I I didn't catch the name of the podcast, but it's you know it's Ozzy, so it's tweeted. You can go find it. Uh, he didn't hide it. 
but he was stressing the idea that what Vaughn, you know, what he hopes Vaughn's being told by coaches and, and, and people in the front office and everything is that you don't have to go out there and replace Jose Abreu. You have to go out there and be Andrew Vaughn. He's absolutely right. And also knowing Vaughn the little bit that I do, I don't think that's an issue. I, I think Andrew Vaughn has the head on his shoulders, you know, the brain in his skull to, to really kind of stay within himself and kind of understand what he can do. What I'm really interested in seeing, truly interested in seeing from Andrew Vaughn is whether that head inside, whether that kind of approach, that really smart hitters approach, which did get loose toward the end of last season, swinging a lot of high fastballs that he had, you know, had kind of gotten loose in his, in his discipline, his plate discipline there. How much does he think, how often does he think he can do damage by turning on the baseball? You know what I mean? Because we saw him take a role at uh, Chapman out to right field in Yankee Stadium in his rookie season on a you know thousand mile an hour fastball on the outside part of the plate, and that was absolutely fantastic to watch, right? But I want to know how much, like, when you see that cookie, when you identify that mistake, can you punish it? And I think that matters not only because he's Andrew Vaughn and he led the team in home runs last year, and he. If he's going to lead the home the team in home runs again in 2023, it better be with 35, right? It can't be with 17, at least in terms of the, the club-wide expectation. Then you're going to have to pounce on some cookies, and you're going to have to not let the guy forget you did it. So I think that matters a lot. And when I talk to guys that are much smarter than I am in terms of you know identifying you know skill sets and from a scouting perspective, they all most of them have said to me, well, that's, that's not a problem with him. That's, that's really not a concern. It's what he gets to hit. That's going to be the bigger issue. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out exactly how that's going to play out. And and if any of it is going to be evident in spring training, because some, sometimes that is, and sometimes it's not. And sometimes you think it is, and it ends up not being, it's really difficult. I think to evaluate any one thing in spring training, it's just be healthy, and throw hard if you're a pitcher. Those are the things that I, I want to see coming out of spring training more than anything. So I think some of it's going to be a little bit of a cipher uh, up until we get to you know March in that opener against the Astros. Connor, one of the other things that I find interesting is the the schedule. I love this. I love mm-hmm. the the balanced schedule. Has it like dawned on you that it's going to be this different with like the 13 divisional games or whatever, and then you're playing everybody? I've been like, I feel like I've been waiting for this forever. Well, I got to tell you, I, I panicked a little bit because I thought we were going to go through week by week the schedule. And you guys both know, we, my wife, we had our first baby, uh, our first kid a couple of weeks ago. I haven't even looked at the schedule because I have a nine-week-old. So my schedule is just, did she eat in the last four hours? No? Okay, feed her. You know, like that. I got panicked there for a second. Um, no, I, I love, I love the schedule. I was just as a... As a broadcaster, uh, you know, prepping a pregame show for for all of 162, sometimes you get down to even like July and you're going, Jesus, is it the Royals again? We, I just did this show. You know what I mean? Like all the stats are the same. Maybe Bobby Witt hit another home run. I don't know. But like everything else is the same as it was last week. I'm really looking forward to that change. Really looking forward to that balance. And I think it'll be really good. You know, less less so for for broadcasters. And I just mentioned it because that's that's what I do. I see Mike Trout highlights; it's my job. But I think it's gonna be really great for fans in every city that you know Mike's either coming to town or you're gonna watch three games where your team goes to travel against him. And that's the same for every you know star in baseball. I think it is, I think it is way overdue. 
Um, I know the Athletic has been, you know, going bananas <laughs> talking about the future expansion of Major League Baseball and realigning divisions and whatnot. And I, you know, I think some of that's a valid conversation too about where this game's headed in the future. But this was, uh, I think, baseball is making a handful of necessary changes in 2023. I'm excited for almost all of them, except for that absolutely ridiculous rule of putting a runner on second base starting in the tenth inning. Yeah. So some of those, like we were going to bring that up too. What's, what, what are your, your favorite ones? I feel like, I don't know. I feel like you wouldn't love the, the shift one either. So no, I hate the shift. yeah, yeah. I like banning it. Yeah. I figured you wouldn't be a fan of that. Yeah. I hate banning it. I hate banning the shift. DJ hates banning the shift. Len's actually cool with it. Um, which I'm really interested. We've had, you know, conversations off the air, the, the three of us about, you know, the, the pluses and minuses. And I, that's one of the things I'm actually really most excited for in this season is that I think, you know, I, I love talking baseball and stuff and I hope White Sox fans like hearing me do it at least a couple of times a year, but we're going to be able to have that conversation, Len and DJ and I, and I think we've got some really good arguments on either side of the equation about this massive change to baseball in 23. So if nothing else, you're going to get some really good baseball talk on, on our broadcasts on ESPN 1000 coming up this year. Um, I don't like banning the shift because mostly they're telling you that it's going to give you this, 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 and this, and it's going to take away all of these bad things you didn't want to watch. When when all of the evidence we have points to that not being the case for banning the shift, to say nothing of the fact that whether it's Joey Gallo or Yasmani Grandal, perhaps, they get up there with the game on the line, I think you're going to see the left fielder wander over into that short rover position and a, a pseudo shift is going to be on a different kind of shift is going to be there when it matters most so now what do you think of your brand new shiny rule you know i mean it's i i don't it, it doesn't make as much sense as the pitch clock and as bigger bases do those things have the proof behind them and and for the most part that's why i'm i'm really excited about those you know, it, it makes me think a guy like Christopher Morrell, for example, mm. somebody who can play third and also a corner outfield spot yeah. potentially. Yeah. I mean, there's so the point that I kind of stick on when it relates to the shift is the Players Association trying to boost the value of players who maybe were overlooked due to the, you know, we talked about the three true outcomes of Major League Baseball, the tendencies that was the game, hard throwing pitchers and power hitting bats. So I wonder if that. Play, I'm sure it did in the Major League Players Association trying to bargain with, you know, Major League Baseball in saying, hey, you know, this is an opportunity to allow the athletes to take over yeah. when the ball is put in play. I think that's one aspect to it. And two, when I mentioned like, you know, the ball in play and letting the athletes take over, we're not going to see max effort on every pitch anymore uh, due to the pitch clock. And I just wonder what that's going to do to players around Major League Baseball, and if it's going to save pitchers from getting hurt, considering the damage that it does when you're max effort all the time. I think that's going to, Mike, I think that's going to be the really interesting thing to watch this year is, you know, you said it in there, you're not going to see max effort. I That may be true, but it might not be true this year. I don't know that we're going to see pitchers across the board realize at the same time that they can't go full out 1000%, you know, Eric Gagne kind of stuff with with every pitch. I think that may take some time to realize that that that's not something they can do anymore with a pitch clock. 
I think you're going to see vast splits between players over over weeks at a time as they work to adjust in different ways to this pitch clock. I think we may find that there are some relievers. I'm just I'm picking relievers as a as a group because I think you know that the, the max effort kind of thing. That's what we've seen over the last decades or so. I think you're going to see groups of relievers who can. I think you're going to see groups of relievers who can't but can adjust. And I think you're going to see another group of relievers who can't. Period. And kind of lose their spot in the show because they're two pitch guys and they have to be able to throw a gajillion miles an hour with a fastball to set up a mediocre breaking pitch or whatever their secondary offering is. And then they find out that if they can't do that thing at max effort, then then they don't have that next trick in the bag. And and maybe they'll find it, maybe they won't. But man, you talk about bullpen churn over the last couple of years. I don't think we've even begun to see what bullpen churn, churn looks like. With, with these new rules and what, what this pitch clock may or may not do to a, to a given set of players. I think it puts a lot more emphasis on teams that can get longer in the bullpen. You know, guys that have uh, player teams that rather have, have one or maybe even two guys that can take you one time through a lineup as opposed to just four or five hitters. Um, I, think, I think it makes teams like the Rays, for instance, much scarier because they're willing to do stuff with their pitchers that other teams aren't and quicker. Um, and I, I think too, maybe to a lesser degree, but I think you're going to see the rhythm kind of upset uh, for, for hitters as well. And while I don't know that that's going to necessarily reflect it in, in the production that individual hitters will, will kind of show throughout the year, I do think that it'll lend uh, it to a couple of, you know, kind of funny, humorous moments as long as, you know, hopefully, obviously that nobody gets hurt, but, you know, moments where like, you know, you've got a guy holding up a hand, screaming at an umpire and, they, you know, panic ensues and be like a Groucho Marx set going down on the field because nobody knows what the hell's going on. And, and <laughs> hopefully we can have some fun with that as long as, you know, everybody stays cool and, and, and doesn't get hurt. Connor, I mean, you've been so generous with your time. I could ask you multiple questions moving forward, and I kind of want to, to be honest with you. Feel free. I got to go and half a pot of coffee here in the hotel room. I mean, it's a beautiful thing because uh, you're going through it. And in my head, yeah, roster construction, you know, 40-man roster overall plus the next 26, I think is going to come into play moving yeah. forward. Just considering what you just said about the pitch clock and maintaining and health and churning through arms especially – but I'm curious your opinion on the modern baseball player, the current athlete, those mm. who are developing in high school, then to college. And those, I mean, I played Park District and then I played high school and I played in college. I wasn't going to driveline. I wasn't going to these camps uh, or playing 100 games in the summer in travel baseball. And not to say that's the wrong way to go. It's just a new way of developing as a player and to have access to the information, the tech, and the training, I, I just feel like these players are so much more advanced when they get to the major leagues, and they're debuting at such younger age, especially those who are the best in the league. I'm wondering what your opinion is of what the modern baseball athlete looks like today. Well, you know, Mike, it's 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 interesting. I haven't. I, I got to say, it's not a question I've thought about a whole lot, and yet I, I find it a really interesting one. So. This will be by far my least informed uh, response uh, on the pod, but it is something that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about. I, I think a couple of things. One is, and Steve talks about this a lot. Steve Stone talks about this a lot. The the value of playing multiple sports as a kid is mm-hmm. is 
so high, you know, I mean, it's just so to say nothing of the psychology of it and, and, you know, raising well-rounded individuals and all this other kind of stuff. And I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I'm a, I'm a new father. And though CJ probably won't, you know, maybe she'll play baseball. She probably headed the softball route. Who knows? Maybe it's different by the time she's 16 or whatever. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't think we're going to be in a situation where we're looking at like elite travel baseball for my daughter yet. I wouldn't it be cool if we were, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we were opening this up to, to bigger and better groups, uh, bigger and more diverse groups of, of young players? I think while it's so cool that places like Driveline exist and, and and these, you know, all these agencies have different places where you can, you know, it's not Adam Adovino running out a storefront in New York and setting up his own slow motion cameras anymore. There are places that do this for you. I hope that we're in a place soon where where places like that have scholarships available, where where that kind of technology is available to players who find it difficult, families who have players that find it difficult to get into the game in the first place. I I love that we're creating the baseball players that we are. I really hope that we're also stressing that that baseball is everybody's sport and you don't have to be this, you know, country club kid with a, you know, with a a tennis pro. And that's the only way you're going to get the individual instruction you need to succeed. I've never liked that about um, about our sport in in particular, whether that's, you know, uh, what is it, uh, pitch perfect or uh, whatever it is, diamond perfect, whatever the hell that thing is. I, you know, it's just, we're, we're ranking 14-year-olds in, in different places. And it's just like, what, do we need to do that? Are we, what is, what are we creating here? So I, I can see the value of, of that kind of individual instruction and the intensity. I also think that, you know, <laughs> I was, I was an umpire for a little bit, right? Umpiring, uh, you know, when I was 16 or 17, right? And I had to kick a dad out of a game because he was getting way too involved and, and just saying stuff that didn't need to be said. I, I think we also kind of like drum up that sort of response as we get more and more hyped about the results that these young athletes have. And I, I realize now, guys, that I'm getting a little bit worked up about it. And I, I, it's cool because I, I don't think – that I would have responded like this emotionally had I not had a kid. So I think for everybody, for everyone listening who, who is like, you know, 25 and, and hasn't settled down with a family or whatever, believe me when I tell you that this stuff matters a whole lot more when you've got bread in the game. And it's just a different, it, like right now I'm having a very different, almost out of body experience answering this question than I ever would have before. So I appreciate you asking it because I, I haven't had a chance to think this way since I've become a dad. What other challenges have you faced now that you're a new dad? Diapers. Diapers are challenging. <laughs> uh, not not unsurmountable. I, I have figured it out pretty quickly. You just got to you gotta just get in there and not think. That's very much like a don't, don't think while you're doing this. Just, just go ahead and do the thing. There is, there is no challenge though. Like you, you're holding this child and you love this child, right? Like it doesn't, it, there are no words. Like truly there are no words to explain your affection to this child. And this child is screaming at you for three straight hours and you don't know what to do to help it. The the combination of those emotions are really scary. <laughs> just, it's, it is rough at times. <laughs> and you just, you just kind of figure it out, I guess. 
Well, I'm really happy for you. I mean, I can't Thanks, really state that enough. It's um, it's it's awesome to see that you had success and you're having success and you have a happy and healthy family going for you. Um, as the 2023 White Sox, hopefully it doesn't take away the joy that you're feeling right in this moment. Because to be honest, Connor, I'm buying into the optimism. Now, I hate that there's this, you know what, why not, right? I mean, it, it sucks that there's this dark cloud looming over the Mike Clevenger situation. It's just totally unfortunate uh, across the board. It really is. And I mean, the Sox are in a tough spot. Major League Baseball is doing its due diligence. Mike Clevenger's in a tough spot in his clubhouse in a pure baseball sense. What are you going to do? Um, it, it's just one of those things that the White Sox have taken on and they're going to have to overcome. And with all of that being said, I still am finding myself, despite the two and a half years of misery, yeah. I'm excited because there was too much talent. And here I am saying it again, the same thing I was saying last year. I'll also go back to what you were talking about earlier in the episode. Pedro Grafol and this new coaching staff, that's not for nothing. This type of philosophy that's going to be instilled to the players on this roster, I think will translate. Now it's on the players, but I think it's yeah. going to translate because that stuff matters. And I think they're going to show it. Well, a couple of things. I, I think, I mean, you're absolutely right. What we've seen over the course of the last uh, 25-ish years in baseball is that there there seems to be, like mathematically, seems to be a thing of a new manager bounce. There, That's that's in the numbers. Go read Ben Lindbergh's stuff about it. Actually, he's written about it and, it and it exists. So capitalize on that. And also, it is on the players, Mike. You're absolutely right. The other thing that I would say is this, and, and since we've spent a lot of time on this show pumping up the Future Sox product, let me please pump up our own product just a little bit. I think White Sox fans are in such an enviable position when it comes to watching and listening to their broadcasts throughout the course of a season. I understand, I truly understand that your heart is in this team and that you want to see wins, and that you want playoff appearances, and you want World Series. I completely understand it. I've been there. This is supposed to be fun, after all. And I don't think you could be in better hands than Len Casper and Darren Jackson and Jason Benetti and Steve Stone to keep you entertained and having fun throughout a season, regardless of the outcome. That's maybe the thing that I've learned from Len the most is – this is supposed to be fun, damn it. So so let it be fun. And I I really truly, you know, whether it's uh, you know, Len having um, come up listening to Ernie Harwell or, or whatever it is that that made him the way he is, Sox fans get to listen to that every day and that is awesome and it's gonna be fun. Um so bought in, man. I can't wait. <laughs> and, and you know what? When you talk about Len Casper and when he says it's supposed to be fun, I remember a story Jeff Joniak told us. Joniak lives and dies with every Bears game. And I know it. <laughs> when there was you know, the tough losses and the brutal years, you know, even go back to Tressman, fast forward to Nagy and the playoff appearances and the losses, Joniak would take it home with him. Yep. I think, you know, that's what makes Jeff so great. Like when he screams yeah. fade the black, like it's it's not a it's not a thing he came up with. That's like his heart right there for you in audio form form as a broadcaster and I learned this the hard way too you you have to be able to let it go because you it, it's just it's it's so rare for a human being to be able to summon it up again the next day after getting your heart broken last night um, that's a lesson learned for me and and it is it is difficult to do because uh, you get yourself wrapped up into it and, and you feel 
and, and you probably are having a, a better game than you might otherwise. You got to find ways um, to harness. And, you know, I didn't I didn't come up doing minor league games the way a lot of guys probably have had this. You know, kind of learned and relearned. Uh, Joe Brand actually is a, a very good friend of mine and a guy, the Blackhawks Supreme Post Game host. He subbed in for me, calling a game on White Sox Radio, and does an amazing job um, for Peoria and has for years. Joe Brand talks a lot about this. You have to be able. Um, to let this go and whatever it is, however it is that you allow yourself to do that, you have to do that. Um, otherwise it's going to wear you down just, just because, I mean, even if your team is good, you're, you're still losing 60 games, you know, that's a lot. Shout out to Joe Brand, man. I love Joe. I, Joe is, uh, I, I love Joe Brand. I absolutely love the guy. I had the privilege of meeting him. Well, I know he worked with the Windy City Thunderbolts. Uh, I also ended up working there for three years. He worked with the King County Cougars, and I had a chance yeah, to work I with think Joe. I said Peoria. I'm in King County. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got it. And that's where we built our relationship. Uh, that is the ultimate professional. So I'm glad you were able to drop him uh, a couple of shout outs in this podcast. Absolutely yeah, he, love the guy. The, I, the Blackhawks uh, and, and GN should be, I, and I know they're thrilled with what they have. That kid's headed to the big leagues really soon. Yeah, he's a star. Connor, thanks so much for all the time. This has been great. You're welcome back anytime. Have fun this season. Best of luck and, and keep doing your thing. Appreciate you guys and the work that you do. Uh, as much love as I've spilled all over Len and DJ and Jason and Steve. I, I, I really do think White Sox fans are pretty blessed to have some of the outlets that they have covering their ball club. And I think Future Sox and Sox Machine are absolutely two of those places that Sox fans should feel very lucky to have their team covered. Well, that was nice of him to say. How kind of him to take all the time that he did talking to James and I on the Future Sox podcast. We're here for you every Tuesday. Hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll be back again next week. White Sox baseball's on the horizon. We're covering it all here at Future Sox and FutureSox.com. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. It was a joy to record, and hopefully it was uh, insightful as you enjoyed listening. For Connor McKnight, for James Fox, my name's Mike Rankin. This is the Future Sox Podcast. We'll talk to you all next week.